My sermon title for this morning uh, is called Body of Lies. Now, I know that's a really bad sermon title, but you've got to bear with me. Um, <laughs> we have been going through the lectionary texts over, for the past number of weeks, and uh, Kendall said to me as he was saying, uh, to preach on this week that uh, we've been doing movie titles, so just having a little bit of fun with it. But um, as we were in worship last week, and I was kind of just meditating on what was happening in the room and, um, and thinking about this week's message, uh, I was drawn to this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, which is one of the lectionary readings uh, for today. And I, I, just felt, I just felt prompted in my spirit that this was the correct passage to, to speak on this morning. So if you would like to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we are going to be looking at verses 12 through 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26. My hope and my prayer for this morning is that God, by His Spirit, would be so pleased through the text to not only just reveal truth, but to perhaps break lies that we may be believing about ourselves about how we relate to one another, about how we do community. And so if you would join with me in prayer, and we will get started here. Father, we want to thank you so much for your presence here with us this morning. We pause for a moment, God, and we acknowledge that you are here. We do not have to beckon you to come. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. We acknowledge that and we thank you. And Father, right now we just, we thank you for your presence. We thank you. We acknowledge that you are here. And Father, right now as a community, we posture our hearts to hear you. We posture our minds and our spirits to listen to what you want to say. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, like we prayed this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. I ask that you would anoint these words, that they wouldn't be my words, but that they would be your word to us. And I do pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would be pleased to reveal truth to us in a way that leads us into greater freedom, that breaks powers of lies that might be holding us back. So we give you the honor and the glory and we ask that you would speak. And everyone said, Amen. Before we get started today, I just want to take a moment to uh, remind everyone, um, right now, uh, Barb and Kendall, our, our lead pastors, are in Leduc, Alberta, at a conference with uh, Kale Mumby. Uh, a lot of you know Kale. He's ministered here before in our church um, he's a respected prophet in our nation, and in 2014, he had uh, this remarkable prophetic word and a dream about our community here in Warman. And I just want to take a moment to, uh, to just briefly, I'm not going to read the whole prophetic word, but I just want to briefly look at it again. Uh, Barb and Kendall have asked us to make it a, an emphasis in our prayers as we pray for our community, and so I just wanted to highlight a couple of sections uh, from that, as they are at that conference right now, um, 
So in this dream, uh, Kale, who is the prophet, he's an old man in this dream, and there are young people sitting around him, and they're asking him these questions of, when did the revival begin? And he goes on and he talks in this dream about different places, and he, he comes to this point, and I want to read it to you. There was particular attention placed on Warman, Saskatchewan. I had to look on the map to see if Warman, Saskatchewan actually existed. There was a strong emphasis on this location. As I looked at the red pin in my dream, I knew that this city was key for the coming awakening of Canada and the world. I heard that it would be a place of the burning ones. It will be a furnace where the fire burns bright, and the fire burns with incredible intensity. The Lord is going to start stirring up his zeal in warm in Saskatchewan, and I believe that what happens from this location will be no small fire. I believe a significant global fire will fall in warm in Saskatchewan. I believe that in all these specific locations which the Lord has showed me, that we are going to see a radical increase in prayer for revival. The fire will fall. And I just want to note here at the end, again, this was in 2014. As a side note, I did not know at the time I received these dreams that in Warman, Saskatchewan, and you have to realize, as Kale was having these dreams, he did not know that Warman, Saskatchewan was a real place. <laughs> He's just having these dreams, and he felt like the Lord highlighted Warman, Saskatchewan. He had never heard of it before. And so he looked on a map to see, oh, is this actually a real place? And it turns out it is. <laughs> and at the time, he, I started receiving these dreams that in Warman, Saskatchewan, this May, a church called Awakening will be hosting a worship summit with Sean Foyt, director of Global Burn 24-7 Movement, the Warman Awakening Church. What a name. <laughs> I share that with you just to remind us of the, the word that God has placed over our community over our region, over this place. And the leader inside of me immediately goes to the questions of how. How is this going to happen? How are we going to do this? When is this going to happen? What, what do we have to do to make this thing happen, right? And the, I'm, I'm a very, I like, I like step-by-steps. I'm, I'm not a fly by the seat of my pants kind of guy. I like instructions, I like recipes, I like somebody just like, I would, be, I would have been a really good soldier in the military, I'm really good at just following orders, following instructions, you just tell me what to do and then I'm going to do it, right? So when I read a prophetic word like this, the instinctive part of me goes to, okay God, give me the five-step formula of how we're going to see this thing happen, right? I, like, you just, you just lay out the blueprint for me and we will get to it. Right? And there's a part of my heart that I know is in the right place because I want to see this word come to pass. Amen? There's a part of, there's a posture of my heart that I know is sincere where I go, God, I want to see that happen. And I want to be, a, I just want to play a little part in actually seeing it come to happen, right? But how many of you know that following Jesus is not like following a recipe? <laughs> it doesn't really work like that. There's no five-step formulas to following Jesus. It doesn't work like that. You don't get handed the Ikea manual book when you surrender your life to Jesus, right? I love those Ikea things, man. They're so great. You open it up, it's like, oh, I love this. This is great. This is gonna, every step is going to tell me what to do. It doesn't like that when you follow God. That's the life of faith, right? 
You take a step and then you take another step and you're not, you're not completely 100% sure where this next step is going to take you. But that's the journey of faith. And I believe a prophetic word like this demands that we... God is inviting us to see what He sees, even when we don't see it. And He's inviting us to sow our lives in such a way that we might be able to see it come to pass. But it isn't a five-step formula. It isn't a recipe card. It's a life and an invitation to faith. Amen? Now, what I will say is, again, I don't have a recipe card for revival. (laughs) I don't have it. If I had it, I would have played that card by now. (laughs) I don't have that. But here's what I do know. If we're going to see this word come to pass, it is going to take all of us. If we're going to see this word come to pass, it is not going to rest on the shoulders of just a few individuals. It is going to take all of us and more. I don't know exactly how we are going to get there, but I know we are going there together. I don't know exactly how we're going to get there. I wish I did, but I don't. But I know this. I know we will go there together. Amen? And so with that in mind... That brings us to our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul is writing this letter to this church that he helped establish probably in the early 50s, roughly 20 or so years after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is a young church, but it has a lot of issues going on. And most notably, as you read through and study the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that there is a particular issue in this church with division. Um, There are a lot of different competing interests within the church. And Paul is writing to it, this this church is gifted, this church has the fullness of God's Spirit in it, but it is immature and there are lots of divisions happening within it. That's the context. Corinth was a very wealthy and affluent city. It's located on modern-day Greece, on kind of like on the northeastern shoreline. And it's in between Greece and Italy. And it was a port city, so what, what was happening in that city is that many different, it was the center or the hub of a lot of different trade routes. And so what ends up happening in wealthy, affluent cities like that is that you, there becomes these massive, um, obvious class systems that start happening, right? You'll notice this in, in bigger centers, right? When you go to bigger cities, you can see where the obviously affluent or rich live, and you see where the obvious poor live, Right? And so this is what's happening in Corinth. And so as Paul plants this church, many different people from many different walks of life, they begin to start following Jesus. And you have some who are very wealthy and affluent, and you have some who are very poor. And that kind of spills over into the church. We start seeing this where, in particular, in chapter 11, Paul is addressing this division that is happening within the church how some of the rich, more affluent believers are excluding and pushing out the poorer of their community. They're coming together around communion, and what they're ending up doing is they're just having a party and getting drunk, and they're leaving the poor people out. And Paul is writing this letter to say, don't you understand this is a problem? (laughs) Like, 
And so it's in this context where there is a lot of division, there is a lot of, of brokenness happening within this church, that Paul writes this, this letter, and it's where he gets to the body of Christ. And this is where he starts sharing his thoughts, particular on the body of Christ. And so I believe, as, I, as I'm looking through this passage, that there are three there are three truths that I believe God wants to highlight to us, or just to put it a different way. I believe there are three specific lies that Paul wants to address to his church that I believe are relevant for us today. So if you would join with me in reading in 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12. For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I'm going to stop there for a moment. I was born in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, Canada. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I love you, Al. That was great. <laughs> I was born on June 20th, 1989, to two middle-class white individuals, Herbert and Paulette Hodgson. And they named me Wesley, and that became my identity. When you are born... You are given an identity. You are given a name. You are given a culture. You are given a language. You are given an identity. And that is important and it is significant, right? That's how birth works. You are born in a particular place at a particular time to a particular set of individuals. And you derive identity from that reality. And that's true. That's how birth works. It's also how your second birth works. It's also how you are born again. The Bible says that you must be born again or born from above. And when you enter into this new reality with Jesus, the Bible, it's almost like being born again is essentially the idea you take it from the top. <laughs> you come to this point in your life where you recognize I have not been walking in step with God's heart and His plan for my life, and I need to start over again. And you take it from the top. And at that moment, you're in your spiritual life, but in all of your reality, you are born again. And you are given a brand new identity. You are given a brand new birth date. In fact, so many of the early Christians were so drawn to this reality of at their baptism, they would actually change their name. That there is this whole new identity that you take on as you enter into this relationship with God, as you enter the body of Christ. And I would like to suggest to you, I would dare to say to you, that identifying with your new birth is actually more important than identifying with your physical birth. Identifying with your rebirth 
is actually more important than a primarily identifying with your physical birth. Here is why. We live in a fractured and divided world today. We live in a world that is rampant with racism, with sexism, and with judgment riddled throughout it. We live in a world that is increasingly becoming more polarized and divided and is descending down the dark path into tribalism. Tribalism is this idea that I derive my identity from who I am against. Tribalism is this idea that there is this small little group of people who are in, and I derive my sense of identity by who I am against, who is out, who is not allowed in this little circle right here. And who I am against now forms the basis of my identity as a human being. And you see this throughout history that that as human beings, we descend into tribalism and we end up doing horrific and awful things to one another because we are identifying primarily with our primary birth. You see this throughout history. There are all these conflicts between different races and ethnicities and all of these things happening because there's place, there, there, there is so much emphasis placed on a primary cultural identity. Does this make sense? So let me read for you the text again, but let me put it in our context. In Paul's day, he writes, we are all baptized into one body, and he says Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Let's put it in our context, okay? For we were all baptized into one body, black, white, or brown. Does not matter. Slave or free, let's say it like this. Whether you have a six-figure salary or you're collecting welfare, you are all baptized, Paul says, into one body. And so what Paul emphasizes this because at the new birth, you are given a new identity. And your race and your gender and your socioeconomic status, none of that is primarily significant. Now, I want to make a point here. I'm not saying that your background or your ethnicity or your gender, I'm not saying that none of that matters or has any significance any longer. I'm I'm not saying that at all. God loves diversity. It's to be celebrated. It's to be upheld as a beautiful thing. But it is not of primary importance. It, is, it should not be the most primary way that we identify. If, if the most primary way that I identify myself is a white man, there's going to lead to problems. Because inevitably what happens is when I associate a cultural identity and I I, pick my, I put my stake in the ground and I say, this is who I am. I will begin to alienate others and eventually tribalism begins. And my identity is no longer about who I am in relationship to God. It's about who I'm against. And these factions begin to divide us. And it, history will tell you that it leads to all kinds of atrocities. When we are baptized into Christ... Those ways of identifying ourselves no longer hold the highest place of significance, right? It's not to say that it's not significant. 
It's just no longer the highest place. You and I need to first and foremost identify ourselves. We are the children of God. Regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of income. And you know what? Church, the, the world needs to see a living picture of what this looks like right now. That there would actually be a body of people, regardless of race and gender and socioeconomic status, that love each other. Because the world is desperately crying out to see a different way of relating to one another. We need to realize that this is not the primary way we need to identify ourselves. But that Christ's identity over me and over you, this is actually the way we need to identify ourselves. That's the first lie I believe Paul wants to address. The second lie is found in verse 14 through 20. Let's read it together. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The second lie that I believe Paul is addressing here in the text is the lie of self-disqualification or of comparison. I see so many discouraged and disheartened Christians get taken out of a meaningful life of faithfulness to God because they get sucked into the vacuum of comparison and self-disqualification. And it ticks me off. (laughs) It really, really does. There's this old expression, I don't know if you've heard of it, where it says, comparison is the thief of joy. I actually think comparison is a lot lazier than that. (laughs) It takes like wit and cunningness to be a real thief. (laughs) I think comparison is a lot lazier than that. How many of you know the the show Seinfeld? Okay. I I think of I think here's what I think of comparison. Or I think comparison is a lot like Kramer. Okay? So if you know the show, you know that Kramer is the next door neighbor to Jerry. And he, he opens the door, and he slides in, right? And he just sort of like, he just sort of waltzes around. And it, what's the first thing he always does as he enters Jerry's apartment? He goes straight to the fridge. It's the first thing he always does. He barely ever says hi. So he comes in, he opens the door, and he slides in. And then he slams the door behind him. And he goes over to, and he, he, starts, he starts taking out all the food and makes himself a sandwich all the time. <laughs> I think comparison is a lot like that. We're kind of like Jerry, where we just keep letting him in. Comparison is this this gnawing thing that comes in and eats your lunch. But you you don't shut the door. If you would just lock the door, he would stay out. I see so many believers who are looking at other people. And looking at other ministries and looking at other people with their gifts and their talents and their skills. And they're, oh man, look at what that guy's doing. Oh my gosh. 
Look, oh, look, look at what she's doing. Wow, look at how she's making a difference. Isn't that, wow, what am I doing? Oh, my goodness. Wow, what, what am I doing with my life? My, oh, 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 poor me. And you start descending down this trail, and Kramer just walked in and took your lunch. Because you let him in. Comparison is not the thief of joy. Comparison is the annoying neighbor you keep letting in. Stop comparing yourself to who you are not and start celebrating who God has made you to be. Stop comparing yourself with who you're not and start rejoicing in who God has created you to be. Oh, I... <laughs> If you are trying to find your identity or your significance in what you do, I see a lot of Christians fall into this trap, right? Where it's like, oh, if I get the big ministry, if I, if I, if I save enough people, if I, if I see enough people get healed or delivered or whatever, if you're trying to find your identity or your significance in what you do, you will never do enough, ever. That is a pit of despair waiting to be dug, and you're going to dig your own hole. You will never do enough if you try to find your identity and significance in what you do, because your identity and significance needs to be found in who you are. Your identity and significance isn't found in how much money you make or how, 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 how effective you are in the kingdom of God. Your identity and significance is found because you're a child of God. And if you try to derive that sense of accomplishment and sense of, oh, now I'm significant, it will never be enough, ever. The, so if you're the foot, if you are the foot in the body of Christ, be the best foot you can be by the grace of God and quit looking at the hand and wanting to do what the hand does. Right? If you're the baby toe <laughs> on the foot... Be the best baby toe you can be by the grace of God. And quit comparing yourself to other people. Do you, do, you, do you know how messed up your life would be if you broke your baby toe? Do you have any idea how much significance and balance that your baby toe gives to your entire foot? I dare you to break your baby toe. <laughs> I dare you. To, to go home, no, don't actually do this, but if you were to break your baby toe, how much balance and stability that toe actually gives to your entire foot, which, by the way, you walk on your feet every day, just in case you forgot that. You walk on your feet, next thing you know, you're going to have all kinds of crazy issues with your ankle, your knee, your hip, and your low back, without a doubt. So if you say, oh, I'm just, I'm just a baby toe, well, the baby toe is very important, so don't, just, if you're the baby toe, praise be to God, quit trying to be the head. Quit trying to be something else. Be who God has created you to be. Stop comparing yourself with who you're not and start rejoicing in who God has cre who's created you to be because you're important and you're significant to the entire body. <laughs> I just... It just infuriates me when I see so many Christians who fall down this, this line of comparison and take themselves out. And it's unnecessary. 
You are part of the body and your life is significant because you're a child of God. And how you have been gifted and how you have been equipped and what you're called to do, it matters to everything else. So you don't need to compare it to somebody else's gig. Do your gig, right? Lastly, he goes on from there. In verses 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable are those parts of the body that we think less honorable. We bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice with it. The third lie that I believe Paul is addressing here is the lie of independence. There is a pervading sentiment in our society right now, in our churches too, that I can kind of just do this spiritual life thing by myself. I can kind of just I can kind of just do this thing on my own. Perhaps they have been hurt by a community, perhaps they've been hurt by a spiritual authority, but whatever the case may be, we live in a time of tremendous individualism where convenience is king and where um, you know it just becomes, you know, my truth seems to be the only thing that matters. Well, if it's, not, if it's true to me. <laughs> and there's this growing sentiment that I can kind of just do this spiritual life thing by myself. So I don't really need anyone else. Why do I need to go to church? Like, why do I actually need to go? Like, I can listen to podcasts, right? I can catch a sermon online. I can download it. I can listen to worship music. I can, you know, I can be walking around my house in my yoga pants or my sweatpants and I'll put on some worship music. Maybe I'll listen to a sermon here or there. I can read my Bible. This is good. Well, you know what? Maybe, maybe every so often I'll get together with one of my other friends and we'll drink a $7 crappy latte and we'll talk about how lousy the church is. And we'll call it fellowship. Right? There is a pervading sentiment in our society today that I can just do it without people. I can just do it without others. That my spiritual life and my spiritual connection to God is just one way. And I can get that from the internet, and I can get that from just having an open time with my Bible. I don't really need other people. And... This is a problem, as you can kind of tell from my tone, because it fails to recognize what Paul just said. And that is that you are now a part of the body. And the hand cannot just say to the eye, well, I don't really need you. Or the head cannot say to the foot, well, I don't really need you. If you choose to live in independence, 
you are choosing to live contrary to the gospel. I will say that again. If you choose to live in independence, you choose to live contrary to the gospel. On the cross, Jesus did not just die to reconcile us to God. He died to reconcile us to one another. Now, I believe in the reconciliation between us and the Father. Believe me, I do. I am so grateful for the forgiveness and grace and love that was bestowed upon me through Jesus on the cross. 100%. But if you believe that that's the only thing that matters, if that's the whole gospel, it's just me and God are good now. Well, you're failing to recognize that there's a whole other side of the gospel. And that is that God is not okay with the brokenness between humanity. And that His death on the cross is actually taking on the sin that humanity does to one another. And He's absorbing it into Himself that He might create a new humanity of love for one another. I'll read it for you in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter, oh sorry, Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 13 through 16 say this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God. Did you hear that? He might reconcile both of us. He's creating one new humanity, that He might reconcile us both to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The gospel is not simply about your forgiveness and your vertical connection to God. The cross and the gospel of Jesus is that now in Christ, God is creating a whole new humanity, one that is reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Where the hostility that would once divide us has been abolished at the cross. And as the church, we are now the first fruits of that to display that to the world. And so when, when, when a believer comes and says, I, I, don't, I don't really need other people. I don't really think I need other people in my life in order to do this Jesus thing. I'm not sure you're understanding this Jesus thing. Because this Jesus thing is about creating one new humanity where through together in love and interdependence, we display a new kind of humanity that the world is longing for. The hand cannot say to the foot, well, I don't really need you. Or the, or the head say to the feet, well, I, I don't really need you. Do you know the one most consistent thing in the New Testament, out of the hundreds of laws that are throughout the Bible, the one most consistent thing in the New Testament is this, love one another. The most consistent commandment in the New Testament is simple, love one another. It's hard to love one another when you don't think that you need others. When you don't feel that you actually need to be part of community, it's hard to fulfill that law. It's hard to fulfill the implications of the gospel when you feel, well, I can just do this thing by myself. Actually, you can't. God hasn't designed it that way. 
We are interdependent on one another. Just as your very body needs its hands, it needs its arms, it needs its neck, it needs everything. How many of you recognize when, when there's even just one part of your body that hurts and is messed up, it affects everything, right? It doesn't matter if you stubbed your toe or if you messed up your neck or whatever the case may be. How many of you are like, man, oh, I jammed my thumb in the door. Why does my neck hurt? <laughs> like everything hurts now. I just, I just jammed my thumb. What, what is going on? Your entire body is connected. The whole thing is connected to one another. That's just a fact. And the same goes in the church. We are connected to one another. And when Paul says one part suffers, we all suffer. And when one part rejoices, we get to rejoice in that too. You know, this revelation has been so, it's been such a relief to me. I just, I just want to go on a tangent for a moment here before we close. There are so many wonderful, amazing brothers and sisters throughout the world today who are doing amazing, awesome things for the kingdom, right? And sometimes we see them and we go like, oh man, that's so incredible, I want to be doing what they're doing. Because like, I'm just as tempted to fall into comparison as anybody else, right? There's so many wonderful people who are doing incredible things for the kingdom of God. But there is this revelation that hit me where I'm going, yeah, I'm a part of the body and so are they. And I get to rejoice in what they are doing, even if I'm not the one doing it. Right? Like, let's, let's, take, let's take Cassandra Lee for an example. A hero in this house, right? An absolute hero in our community. This woman had, with her husband has, she is literally building schools in conflict zones. And she is changing nations and we don't, we're not seeing the full fruit of that yet, but kids' lives are being changed as they lay down their arms and become students. This is absolutely incredible. And the comparison part of me could fall into the trap, oh, I'm not doing that. Oh, I, I never built a school. <laughs> now look at me, I'm just sitting here in warm, just in freezing warm. <laughs> what am I doing? with my life. <laughs> and this revelation has become such a release to me because I'm a part of the body and so is she and she's doing her part and I get to rejoice in her part. Right? Like when you run a race, your legs are not the only thing that celebrates. <laughs> your whole being celebrates. Right? That's not how it works. It's not like your legs get the glory and the rest of you gets to sit at home. You're a body. And when Cassandra is building schools in the Congo and is radically changing the world over there, that's my victory. That's my victory because she is my sister. And I get to celebrate and rejoice in that. And at the exact same moment, when one of us is suffering... You and I get the privilege to be Jesus and enter into one another's suffering. You and I get to enter into the pain and the trauma and the, the, the struggle that we're facing. And we get to suffer in that together. That, that's the beauty of being a body. And so it bothers me <laughs> when I see believers who are like, well, I don't really need to be in community. I, I, I don't really need to 
I don't really need to submit my lives to other people. I don't really need, I, I, I don't really need that. You're misunderstanding the gospel, and that's a problem. I love you, but it's a problem. Because there are many ways that God can speak to you and encourage you and bless you. And, and I'm all for having a personal history with God. But most of what God wants to do with you and form you is in the crucible of loving relationships and working through things together. Most of the sanctification that God is going to do in your life comes through the, through the vortex of relationships. Because this is the primary way that God wants to form us through other people. Just do a little study in the New Testament of how many times we are commanded and that love one another. Be devoted to one another. Pray for one another. It just one another, one another, one another, again and again and again and again. Because this is God's primary way that He wants to reveal Christ in us. It's through our relationships. And so friends, let us not be a community that says to ourselves, I have no need of you. Let's press in to love one another well. So well that it catches the world off guard. My hope and my prayer over that word, the burning ones, my hope and my prayer is that we would become a community that is so loving one another well that a fire of God starts. That an awakening starts, but it starts from a place of love. Because love is the only thing that can sustain it. I'm all for glory. I'm all for, you know, crazy Holy Spirit moments and all kinds of fun, wacky. Like, I'm, I'm all good with that. That's great. But love is what matters at the end of the day. And love will sustain what God wants to do on the earth. So let us be a community that loves each other well that says to each other, I need you, because we do.